This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast, the extension of the Pitch in Kansas City. I am your editor-in-chief and host of the show, Brock Wilbur. And I am out of breath today. I just, um, I record in the basement of my house these days, uh, cause, uh, can't go to a studio anywhere. Um, <laughs> the cats in my house are not allowed in my basement, but my cat Bernstein wants more than anything in the world to be in this basement. Uh, and so it doesn't matter where he is in the house, even if he's upstairs, totally asleep. The moment I open the door to the basement, he just goddamn appears out of nowhere and he's so small and slinky and like there's an awkward way of getting down through the basement door and repeatedly repeatedly he has snuck past me he he gets down here and i have to chase him down and immediately pick him up because there's like paint cans and stuff down here there's stuff that i know he would get into that the cat shouldn't get into um once or twice I've let him come down so long as he sat next to me just to finally get it out of his system, I thought. But I think that instead just showed him that there's a wonderful, fun space down here. There's a little bachelor pad that he could be taking part in. And uh, yeah, I just chased him down, took him back upstairs, and then he got past me a second time. The rare the rare double juke uh, that really got me. So, woof, should have taken a breath before starting the podcast. How is everybody out there? Uh, how is everybody inside? Um, this has been a fascinating week on my end. The South by Southwest Film Festival has been happening, uh, and it's happening entirely digital this year. My wife and I are both uh, regular attendees of that in Austin, um, and this year it's at home, uh, which is is a fascinating turn because... Um, well, it's a lot different to be watching these things on your couch uh, alone. Uh, definitely... <laughs> hurts the experience of some of the comedies that you would prefer to have seen in a theater with a lot of other people to, you know, hear their laughter and enjoy the energy of that. There's a lot of horror films that I wish I could have heard people shout through. Um, you know, a generally weird time, uh, but also I get to sit here in my pajamas and I'm never uh, shoved into a place. And quite frankly, uh, Torchy's Tacos in Austin was one of the biggest draws of it for us. or just one of our favorite parts was going there after a movie or between movies, and uh, now there's a Torchy's Tacos uh, on Ward Parkway like two minutes away from me. So uh, had our film editor, Abby, over, uh, got just a crap ton of Torchy's Tacos and uh, and some of their uh, margarita and uh, sat down and plowed through like 18 hours of film in a day and just keep uh, chunking off a little more. Um, that has corresponded with uh, The Pitch launching its own music and comedy festival, The Seven Days of St. Patrick, uh, Hartzell and uh, Ben Went, uh, people that have podcasts on our network that you should enjoy, um, really put it all together. Ben owns the the venue in town, the Rhino, and so over a course of weeks, he had bands and comedians come in, uh, filmed their performances, and edited it all together into a show that uh, runs for a couple of hours every night for free online. And um, we got emotional over it. We got emotional over putting up a thing because we've all missed music festivals. We've all missed. Uh, live live performance but the uh, the thing i wasn't prepared for was to hear how many of the bands like off camera like 
cried or got real into this because it was just like they hadn't been on stage in a year and the rhino is a giant beautiful venue and uh just the power of uh, performing with a with a pa running just the the the, the music volume of it to, to be in the space with something that loud it's really incredible um so yeah finding ways back into uh what we <laughs> what we liked uh yesterday morning I went to a screening in a movie theater, uh, the critic screening that they used to show when we get to see things a, a week ahead of, of everybody else so that we can write our reviews. Um, they they showed us uh, Godzilla vs. King Kong, the new movie that's coming to HBO Max in like a week. Um, and they showed it in the theater. There was like four of us in an IMAX, so we were pretty spread out. Uh, and the thing of it is, sometimes for critic screenings, they'll they'll turn things up a little bit they'll they'll turn up the music or what have you to it, it just make it a little more impressive than they normally would a little more over the top because they they really want us to be blown out of our seats um but i've never experienced anything like this because from the moment that the first trailer came on all of us that were in the room just started shouting uh because it was the loudest thing we've ever heard uh, it was just so loud you could feel it in your skull. And like by the time the movie started and no one ever turned this down at any point, like people talking uh, was so loud that it like hurt my stomach and chest. So I was like, I don't want to hear Godzilla scream because that's a very loud sound. And yes, by the time we got there, I thought I was going to bleed from the ears. So I walked out like dazed and almost throwing up. And here's the thing. I cannot for the life of me tell if it's because they cranked it to 11 on the volume there, or if it's just because we've been outside of movie theaters for more than a year and we all just forgot what loud was. Like, I haven't been to a concert. I haven't been to a movie theater. Like, what if I got really old in the last year, which I think we all aged inappropriately, but like I was reaching for the remote several times in a movie theater where I have no remote to like try to turn it down. I was like, this is too much. And <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm really excited for us to return to things, but I think it was the reminder that maybe I'm going to need a bit of a ramp up there. <laughs> like maybe I can't go directly back to theaters because because uh, I'm not in shape. I'm not in shape for big sounds. Uh, so uh, that's a fun new problem to add to the list of the world restarting. It, it felt really good to be sitting in a movie theater again, even with no people. Uh, and then it, it broke my my lungs. So I don't know. Uh, we'll we'll see what we're ready for. Uh, anyway, we've got a great show for you today. Um, I have an interview with a politician coming up at the end. We have Nick's Music Corner as always. But first up, uh, we have a reading by our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment of a uh, magazine article from our most recent one. It's from J.M. Banks, and it's called Fashionably Late. Uh, it is about how the uh, the the black fashion brands in Kansas City are really finding their footing now. Uh, and and fashionably late because, you know, it's been it's been coming. They've been they've been working on this and just never really had the platform. And 2020, 2021 have really provided a, a spotlight, a focus on that. And so their business is booming and it's really exciting to hear about. So uh, here is that piece from J.M. Banks. Have at it, Jason. Fashionably late. Black owned brands are overdue for their spotlight by J.M. Banks. To the mainstream consciousness, style can be an abstract representation, ranging from opulent to odd, depending on where you're looking. Fashion-wise, the urban core of Kansas City does not differ much from other inner cities. 
Casey's scene has been in a constant state of metamorphosis over the past few years. Homegrown innovators and pioneers in the black fashion community have risen up to plant their proverbial flags on the mountaintop of culture and industry. It is important to understand the relationship between the black community, culture, style, and fashion. There is a constant cycle of creation and innovation that takes place from the inner cities of the U.S. and works its way through the American fabric. The pattern is simple. A trend is created and takes hold in the minority urban core. Next, it is picked up by members of the urban white community and then makes its way to the suburbs. After the craze has been adopted by middle-aged soccer moms, the style is deemed uncool and the cycle begins anew. In this way, black culture has stayed a vital element of deciding what's hip, while reaping very few financial gains from the marketing of fashionable clothing. In many cases, these trends move money away from the black community, often to high-end fashion lines. This is a detriment to an already economically struggling people. In this day and age, the importance of buying black and the black dollar have begun to take root in the black psyche. Kansas City's urban core is building a community of future fashion icons to channel those funds back into much-needed areas of the city. If you grew up in the black community in Kansas City, you would have seen a constant evolution of diverse styles creeping in from New York, Los Angeles, and other cities. For the longest time, the community was missing that spark of originality that defined KC. That is until pioneers started to take chances and embrace styles and fashions outside of the black community. Since the 2010s, black culture mixed with rock, anime, hippie, gamer, and other influences from traditionally off-limit intersections. This new willingness to go outside the acceptable avenues to build and add to our fashion while still creating clothing from an unapologetically black standpoint is one of the leading factors that has ushered in this new golden age of KC urban fashion lines. Record numbers of local clothing companies have been emerging such as Grind Addict, Made Mob, and Kiss My Black Ass. In addition to black-owned stores such as Building Black, House of Rena, and Modish Looks Boutique, giving the community unheard-of options. Among those leading the charge for young black fashion trailblazers, one name you are sure to hear is Donnell Jameson and his clothing line Deep Rooted. This self-taught Kansas City native has been creating his own original take on the clothing since 2017. We are the culture which most influences fashion, and our roots in it runs deep, Jameson says. The imagery of roots and growth are prevalent throughout Jameson's designs found at the deep-rooted storefront located in New Landing Mall, located on the corner of Troost and 63rd Street. The name deep-rooted can also be looked at in different ways, being deeply rooted in your community, being deeply rooted in your family, deeply rooted in whatever life you are living, Jameson says. Planting his own roots within the fashion scene for the black community is a big part of the designer's mission in regard to his company. I didn't know until doing research on historic stores in KC that sold black clothing that Harold Penner wasn't a black-owned store, says Jameson. Harold Penner, man of fashion, located a few blocks east on 63rd from the New Landing Mall, stood as one of the leading clothing stores for over eight decades. Throughout the U.S., there is a long history of the absence of black-owned clothing stores within the community. For generations, businesses situated in the urban core have catered to the black community, though without black owners. At the end of business, the black dollar leaves and ultimately enriches every other community except its own. But that, much like Kansas City's urban fashion scene, is also changing. Tynesha Matches is the founder of Matches Boutique, a predominantly women's clothing store that started as an online shop. After a foray in the pop-up business model, Matches settled its own roots in October of last year. Matches Shop became the only high-end black and female-owned fashion store on the Country Club Plaza. 
Matches says the merchandise she features are unique, one-of-a-kind statement pieces, stuff with a lot of color. She curates clothing from designers found locally, such as Release, a black-owned lingerie shop, and Kyla R&D Kai Styles, a duo stylist team, and from others around the country. Since Black Friday last November, Kansas City has been home to an unusual new clothing and apparel store. On 55th and Troost, next door to Revolve KC Community Bike Shop, is One Pair, a shoe and clothing store with a motto of, Everyone deserves one pair of good shoes. The shop is created and owned by Jaron Thornhill and a group of six kids. I was a hustler as a kid and nobody showed me how to put it all together. All businesses are just hustles, Thornhill says. One pair's innovative business model selects six youths of varying ages, all from the inner-city black community, and allows them to participate in running the shop. They help determine which clothing lines are featured in the store, how the shop is decorated, and where the direction of the company is headed. Along with the shoes sold in one pair, ranging in price from $20 to some over $400, the shop is home to eight different black-owned clothing lines from the metro area. Wild Child is one of those brands. The clothing line was started by One Pair's manager K.J. Farmer, who named his businesses after a nickname given to his deceased uncle. His hoodies, t-shirts, and other clothing designs hang between lockers that line the walls at the front of the shop, each holding merchandise from different local vendors. Thornhill and his youth executive board provide a valuable opportunity to up-and-coming and young designers to have their work featured in a location where their brands may find new audiences within and outside the community. Another one of the freshly risen brands to the Kansas City urban fashion sphere is Deontay Howard's modern Christian streetwear brand Icarus Clothing, pronounced like the Greek myth Icarus who flew too close to the sun. Howard's online shop is made up of hoodies, jackets, t-shirts, sweatpants, and sneakers, each designed with avant-garde faith-based images and messaging, and much of his clothing can also be found at one pair. Clothing is the first impression you can give someone. Before you even say a word to them, your clothes have already said a lot. Howard says. For Howard, his clothing line is meant to show that there is hope in the struggle. The bright and vivid designs share messages of optimism, with some bearing Christian scripture and religious phrases. Others celebrate Kansas City. Another popular KC brand in the urban core is Material Opulence, which is also found alongside Icarus on the racks of one pair. Founded by Renald Shelton III, Material Opulence was also created with the hope for something better. Growing up in a town infamously nicknamed Killa City has been a struggle, reads the about page of Material Opulence's website. Imagine losing loved ones every day, each day worrying whether a loved one would be killed for simply being at home or going to have harmless fun. Our struggles made us stronger. Our losses made us see the world differently. However, we know growing up that we wanted better for ourselves and our families. This is why we created Material Opulence. Founder Shelton credits the brand's growth to our ability to take risks, or our ability to take an existing look and really innovate on it. Shelton's clothing is a crisp, clean string of apparel that bears the Material Opulence logo. Shelton shared that it's not just black shoppers purchasing for Material Opulence, but that a diverse range of clientele support his business. This month we launched our Black History Month collection, which you would of course think would be more geared toward the black community, Shelton says. But the first sales came in from online from out-of-town white people. Buying black. Keeping dollars with the black creators who have shaped fashion trends both in Kansas City and beyond starts with the uptick and growth of black-owned businesses and continues with shoppers being mindful of where their dollars are spent. The changing scene of fashion is an often mysterious and ever-changing beast, but the black style makers of Kansas City have fed off of that uncertainty and grown substantially stronger. 
As times change, so must we. The era of white tees and Air Force Ones came to an end, and so shall the current trends. Our community's surge of culture, identity, and business, all of which sprung from the chaos of the struggle in Kansas City, are ready to design the next. And now, as always, it's time for Nick's Music Corner. Nick, take it away! Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. I realized this morning that I've been doing this music journalism thing for a long time. Sam Billen, formerly of The Billions and the founding partner of custom composition company Primary Color Music, shot me a message on Facebook putting me in contact with his brother Dan so that Dan could share the new EP from his daughter Flora. That's right, kids. I'm officially at the age where people whom I've written about are now pitching me the music that their teenagers are making. Oof. I mean, damn, right? Anyhow, uh, Flora, who performs and releases music as Flora from Kansas, just released her first collection of songs, an EP entitled Keep Calling, and as Sam mentioned to me, it definitely has some 90s throwback vibes, but mixed with a confessional style of artists like Phoebe Bridgers or Snail Mail currently performing. It's only five songs, but being as how Flora is also only 14, there's definitely a chance of a lot more music from this new Topeka talent who, in addition to her musical output, does voiceover work and is the voice of Van's Unbox Your Mind campaign. You can stream Keep Calling on most digital platforms, including Spotify, and if you head to her website, floraframkansas.com, there's a link to her SoundCloud where you can find a bonus cover of Nirvana's Come As You Are. Definitely 90s throwback vibes. The album's penultimate song, Better Off Alone, is a real treat, so why don't you take a listen now? Here's Better Off Alone.
Ashley Ani is a uh, representative uh, that represents part of uh, North KC. Uh, and she's been making a lot of news lately. She was recently elected and has just been tearing up the charts. I don't know. What do you say about the, if she was a band, she'd be tearing up the charts with her singles. Instead, she's been doing some really incredible work uh, in terms of legislation, uh, actually getting things done uh, because people from across the aisle even like what she's doing, uh, which I think makes her an incredible salesperson at this point. So uh, we just had a, a fun chat about what she's up to uh, and a chance for you to meet who is maybe your uh, representative. Uh, this is me and Ashley having a chit chat. Ashley, welcome to the show. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me. My name is Ashley Ani, and I am the state representative for Missouri House District 14 in the Northland. When did you run? When did you get elected? Why did you choose to run? I ran uh, just this last year in 2020. Uh, I decided to run in February of last year when I found out that uh, my previous state representative was not seeking re-election. Uh, he had flipped the seat by only 85 votes in 2018, and I knew that we needed a strong Democrat to hold on to the seat. So I decided to throw my hat in the ring. And uh, yeah, I spent uh, most of 2020 campaigning, and I won in uh, November, and I am currently halfway through my first session in the Missouri State Legislature. What was your uh, voter uh, difference like in your, in your victory? <laughs> Uh, so I actually held the seat by about seven and a half points. So, um, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I believe I believe it had a lot to do with shifting demographics in the area. We're just trending blue here. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I also like to give myself a little credit. So and had you ever seen yourself doing the politics thing or was it just uh, is this one of those things uh, like post 2016 where everyone got activated and radicalized and they're like, oh, yeah. Politics actually can ruin our lives real fast if it gets out of control. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of both for me. So I have always been uh, a little political. I've always been very passionate. I volunteered on national campaigns, gotten involved um, starting with the Obama campaign in 08 and uh, moving uh, towards uh, door knocking and things like that. So I've always been really passionate. I just never really saw myself as someone who could be electable, I suppose. Uh, I, <laughs> oh, I've got a nose ring. Uh, I've got some tattoos. Um, I'm divorced and I am a stepmom. I'm not a biological parent. Um, there are just a lot of things that make me a little unconventional um, and especially running in a very suburban district. Um, you know, I definitely had some concerns about my, my own electability. Uh, turns out those were all ridiculous. Um, and I really didn't have a whole lot to worry about um, just in terms of, of my electability. I feel like just the fact that I'm a business owner, uh, you know, I, I think that I present myself um, as someone who knows the issues, is really, really passionate about standing up for my constituents. Uh, and I think that that was, that was enough. That's what's electable these days. I, I think my wife and I for the last few years have been like, we absolutely need to run for something, especially like locally. And I think both of us are faced with the issue of uh, having spent our entire lives online. And there is uh, more than enough out there, I think, to prevent us from being electable just about anywhere, especially in a small local uh, situation. It's actually, it's been sort of a long running thing that I've been aware that, um, uh, Practicing Mormons uh, want to uh, tend to keep their kids off the internet until uh, much later in life, uh, and I was like, 
I think that that means that down the road here, all electable politicians will just be like little Mitt, Mitt Romney's. Like the Mormons are going to take over electability because like they just won't have Facebook pages full of the dumb shit they wrote when they were 13. So yeah. Yeah, that's a struggle. And I know, you know, that was was one thing that really concerned me as well. Um, I've, I've spent my career in marketing. Social media has been at the forefront of my life since it mm-hmm. uh, existed. And, you know, the good news is, is I didn't spend my 20s being wildly offensive. So there's that. Uh, but... Lucky you. Look at you <laughs> bragging about being an adult. <laughs> well, that's not to say there isn't a screenshot out there that someone could probably pull up that I said something stupid. Uh, the good news is, though, you know, I am very much of the mindset. Um, you know, there's a famous Maya Angelou quote uh when it's something about when we, when we know better, we do better. Um, and, and that's how I, how I live my life. Uh, once I learn that I've done something wrong or incorrect, or I've offended someone, uh, I learn and I apologize and I try to do better next time. Uh, we're not all perfect and, you know, we can't pretend to be. And I, I really hope that that doesn't keep people from running for office because uh, we need people who have done some stuff in their lives. <laughs> So I've been looking up to the uh, the, uh, the the sort of stuff that you've been. I, you've always been on the radar here since the election because we were like, she seems uh, good. That that seems like somebody we're going to be excited to follow, and and certainly represent a lot of the city. Uh, was seeing that a lot of the bills that you've sponsored have been uh, very supportive to businesses, especially minority-owned businesses. Uh, it you can you, I really get the sense that you were elected right when you were elected because I can I can see what. Uh, what this period of time has uh, has brought about as the most important things to to be jumping in with. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I also um, am really grateful to be serving on the special committee for small business as well. And so that's been really cool uh, because I've I've had a chance to really uh, kind of see what what is being discussed in our state mm-hmm. government when it comes to small business. And let me tell you, uh, it's it's certainly not the most productive conversation I've ever been a part of. Uh, but is, is it because there's a, such a conflict between the business interests of a mostly rural state versus an urban core? That's a big part of it. Uh, that's a big part of it. Uh, another issue that uh, I, I keep noticing in the legislature is that a lot of the bills that come across um, my desk, a lot of the ones that come through committee, I've noticed are trying to legislate to solve an issue that is specific to the St. Louis area. And uh, that was one of the biggest issues in the small business committee so far this year is uh, we had all of the bills. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, but they were basically making it so uh, they're stripping power away from local health health authorities essentially during a, a health emergency. Um, and it basically escalates it so that anytime um, a health department wants to uh, issue a closure of a business, it has to be approved by um, another entity. And then after a certain amount of time, it, it continues escalating. Um, and that's, that's something of, of very big concern to me. Um, I believe that our health departments should absolutely have the authority to shut a business down if they're violating health code, uh, whether or not we're in a pandemic, maybe especially when we're in a pandemic. But we, what we saw were um, a bunch of business owners who were upset because they weren't following COVID protocols in St. Louis County. And the health department director there um, shut a few businesses down for a full year. And so this 
legislation was in response. Uh, they felt that the closures were unfair, they needed oversight, um, but it was happening in one single health department in the state. But we had to write a bill for it and it is moving through the legislature right now. It's really disappointing. Did you ever think you'd see a time in your life where yeah, where, where the business interests uh, and the and, and politicians where where business is, is the first and forefront and what they want to do would just be like, yeah, we don't like the health department. N not having like rat droppings in our food, like thinking about it both before and after this, what the health department looks like is to be like, what have we what have we prioritized here and and what are we what are we doing for the future? Because that it seems like we're just eliminating that that part of, of of regulation entirely and that seems bad. Absolutely. You know, I see it as a as a symptom of sort of the anti-intellectualism that's sort of sweeping our country right now, this anti-science rhetoric. Um, it's really frustrating. And up in Platte County here, uh, we've had some issues with our uh, local health department not being able to get the number of vaccines they need, not getting um, uh, CARES money distributed to them by our county commission, uh, which is something that everyone up here is, is watching really closely, and um, it's incredibly frustrating to a lot of folks. So uh, our health departments do so much right now up in Clay County. They are um, they're basically, you know, running all of the high throughput vaccine sites up in Clay County. Um, they've been uh, running Operation Breakthrough up at Cerner in the Northland. Um, we owe so much to these folks. Uh, what they do every day is so important. Public health is so important. Um, and it's even more so during a public health emergency. So to take powers away from these people is uh, it's ludicrous to me, and it certainly uh, does not really fall into the small, small local government uh, rhetoric that the right likes to push. I, get, I mean, I guess that brings us to one of the most difficult questions for today, which is, um, what are the names of your dogs? <laughs> the big one is Cyrus. He is a Great Dane mix, and I don't know what he's mixed with, but he weighs a whopping 120 pounds. And... Oh my God, that's not a dog. <laughs> That's not a dog that you have there. He's a, he's a house horse. Uh, and then my small one is Bill. And Bill is uh, a small 65 pounds. And I think that he's a, a Shepherd Sharpe mix is my best guess. They're both rescues. So um, I didn't really know them when they were puppies, but. We got a pandemic rescue dog. Uh, and we, we did one of the doggy send away DNA tests. Ooh. And uh, it came back 50% like cow dog, but everything, it was, we, we both, we were just like, okay, it's a mix. And, and from everything that we looked up about those various uh, dog types, we're like, oh, and he got the worst trait from that one too. And the worst trait from that one, just a, a murderer's row of things, making him the most neurotic, weird little dog. That, uh, and by little, I mean 60, which is still smaller than both of your dogs by, by a factor of two in one case. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, so what has been your biggest success so far uh, in, in your term? What are you most proud of in terms of your work? Uh, I am most proud of the fact that I had a bill heard last week. I am a freshman in a super minority, and I got a bill heard in committee. Uh, that is very rare uh, in the legislature. And it's really exciting. I'm really proud of the work that I did on this bill. Uh, it is a, it's HB 1325, which is uh, a bill that would modify uh, provisions relating to uh, how uh, judges treat family court, um, folks in family, going through family court who are participants in Missouri's medical marijuana program. So essentially what's happening right now is since we passed um, medical marijuana, um, in Missouri, 
Mm-hmm. We'll have some judges who have some lingering biases against uh, marijuana, right. even when folks are being prescribed and are under a doctor's care. They're even um, parents are even facing discrimination when they don't even have possession of the of the drug just for having a card. Um, they're getting discriminated against in custody battles. Uh, so this uh, law would basically just um, make it so that we. Um, are, are very explicit in our law that we cannot, uh, we cannot discriminate against parents in a custody issue. It's very similar to HB uh, 485, which was filed by Ron Hicks. Um, he's a Republican. Um, this, that bill would make it so that adoptive foster and uh, folks seeking, seeking guardianship are not discriminated against uh, for having a me- medical marijuana prescription. And so uh, I actually approached Ron uh, with this bill and asked him to file it because I really believed in the legislation and I knew it would move further and faster with Republican behind it. And he very, very generously said, no, uh, I think this is a good bill and I want to help you with it. So he let me file it. He worked with leadership to get me a hearing um, because it's so similar to his bill. And uh, we're, I'm really hoping that we vote it out of committee unanimously next week. And uh, if it doesn't hit the floor, I will be trying to add it uh, as an amendment to Ron's bill. So I'm really proud of working across the aisle with Representative Hicks. Um, he's been so kind and generous with his time um, and his knowledge in his access, frankly. Uh, and I, I think that is a really cool opportunity to do some good for, for some folks who are facing discrimination in the courts. Now, but you're, you're talking about that as being sort of a lingering inherent bias that, that happens in these places. Like, how is this bill enforceable? Like if, if it's going, like, I, I suppose it, it, it works if they've written into their ruling that the marijuana card plays a part, but if they don't write that in, like I, I, what, how, how does this how does this work uh, feasibly? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, really, what this bill will do is it it puts this language explicitly in the Constitution with um, the uh, legalization of medical marijuana language, um, and that just it's a message to judges that if if a court participant is discriminated against and the, the, it is found that it is due to um, their medical marijuana participation status, um, then that that is a, a recourse for um, an appeal or, or some sort of additional process. Um, but it also sends a message to judges that it's not acceptable. Um, some of the things that I, um, you know, I talked about when I presented this bill are some direct quotes from judges who uh, were actively discriminating against people and, and just quotes from, from um, you know, them denying uh, parental rights to someone. Uh, and it's incredibly discriminatory. And, you know, the, a, lot of, a lot of attorneys, um, especially here in Kansas City, I've heard from, um, are dealing with a lot of clients who uh, are struggling with this discrimination and, and want to see it stopped. Who is your least favorite coworker? Well, that changes uh, from week to week. Uh, This week, I would say, um, and I don't mind naming names this week, Representative Brian Seitz. uh, He represents a Branson area. He has been in the news because last week on the floor, while he was um, discussing the Wayfair tax bill, he called uh, coronavirus the Chinese virus. Uh, and this is something he's done in committee multiple times. Um, he calls it the zombie apocalypse. 
um, you know, he, he, he said a lot so of a mix of dismissive things. and racist. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Um, so my, my colleague, Emily Weber, she's the first Asian American woman to serve in the Missouri house. She represents the 24th district in downtown Midtown, Kansas city. Um, she called him out and she filed a report against him and, um, and rightly so, uh, we've seen what happened, you know, in Atlanta, uh, that the, the mass, killing of, um, I believe it's six Asian women, uh, and eight, eight. Oh my gosh. Um, well, and, love to work in news and just make everything worse for people. Actually, I know the answer, and it's even worse than you thought. I am so sorry. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we're seeing violence against the Asian uh, American community um, increase so much right now. His rhetoric is so irresponsible. Um, I called him out on social media for it. She called him out for it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been in the stars, it's been, it's been all over the place. So, um, yeah, he's my least favorite this week. And I don't mind if he knows that. I, I think the United States' favorite uh, Missouri person this week is uh, uh, probably a guy who uh, spoke about uh, trans children uh, on the floor. Uh, I, I know that that's an issue that's near and dear to you. Uh, would you like to explain what happened and, and why it matters? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So um, I sit on the Emerging Issues Committee, and a few weeks ago, we heard a bill, um, HJR 53. And what that does is it would put a um, it would put language on the ballot so that folks in Missouri could vote on whether or not we should allow trans children to play sports with a gender of with their preferred gender. Uh, would that be a, a statewide bill, or would that be votes like county by county? It would be statewide. And uh, the reason that we found this so egregious, well, there are a lot of reasons, um, but the biggest one is by making it an HJR and putting it on the ballot instead of just going through the regular legislative process by passing a bill through the House and not putting it to a vote of the people um, is, is really concerning for the mental health of trans kids across the state. What we would see if this got onto the ballot um, is we would see a statewide campaign um demonizing trans kids and and then that would be asking for trans people the people most affected by this to start going do door to door uh in in areas where they are probably uh not exceptionally welcome it, it does endanger so many people absolutely it's really dangerous we already know that suicide rates uh, in the trans community especially in trans youth is is high um and we have there is data that shows that when campaigns like this and when issues like this become public um those rates um they rise and that's unacceptable so that is a concern we raise the other concern is that um the Missouri State um, High School Athletic Association, I may be getting that wrong, but um, they already have a policy to address this in Missouri. Um, they have a rigorous policy to address this. And um, when I questioned the bill sponsor about if he is familiar with this policy, he admitted he had never read it. He does, he, he's legislating um, here. He's attempting to legislate a um, a solution to a non-existent problem. And so what happened in that hearing is this incredible father um, came and spoke. He's, he's a Kansas City resident. Um, and he spoke about his experience with his trans daughter. And it was incredibly moving. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of folks have seen it. It, it has gone viral. Um, and he, he just spoke about letting his daughter live her truth. And 
he implored the committee to vote against this legislation and it was beautiful and it was honest and it was raw uh and i'm i feel incredibly privileged that i was there to witness that testimony um and also really sad that i had to i'm gonna let you get back to doing the good fight out there but uh one last question here uh what is the best barbecue in kansas city Oof. Well, uh, the, the good news is, is there's not really a huge fight for barbecue in the 14th district. So I don't feel like I have to get political about this. Um, this is me trying to provide something that can cancel you later for next election. I guess. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I'm going to go with Arthur Bryant's. Uh, my dad used to take me to Arthur, Bry the original Arthur Bryant's when I was a kid. And oh man, there's just nothing like being in that line and then being rewarded with some incredible, incredible meat and French fries. It's just so good. It's a solid ass answer. Okay, so much. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time today. And we look forward to talking to you uh, again, uh, much more often uh, as, uh, as, as your work uh, continues to uh, evolve. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, that has been Streetwise from The Pitch here in Kansas City. I'm your host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Brock Wilbur. Please check out thepitchkc.com for news every single day. God, we are working hard. This was a particularly brutal week, and we can't figure out why. Maybe just because it was cold and everyone felt like they needed a nap, but we... Uh, we still did the work, and I hope you enjoy what we've been doing. Uh, visit thepitchkc.com. If you ever have a couple of bucks, you can toss our way to help keep the lights on. That'd be incredible. Uh, otherwise, just be nice to each other. Be cool out there. Uh, we're, we're getting through this. Go, go get your shot as soon as you can. They're opening it up uh, in the next week or two to absolutely everybody. By the start of uh, April, uh, everyone should have access in all of Missouri. So, like... Uh, Time to start getting your name on the lists, uh, and there's so many lists. Uh, look out, look for everything in every county. Look for the state stuff. Look for the city stuff. Uh, individual hospitals have them. Walmart has signups. CVS has signups. There, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and Hy-Vee uh, are are doing vaccination events together. It's it's just wild how many people are chipping in all of a sudden now that we actually have the shot. So go out there and get it so you can get out there again for real. Pitch in and we'll make it through. Thank you guys for listening. Bye bye. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.